The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy with your host, Lou Augusta. Lou is one of the premier empathy consultants in the community today. In this program, Lou and his guest experts will help you understand and expand your empathy. In doing so, you may discover a side of yourself that you never even knew existed. Now, here is Lou Augusta. This is Lou Augusta, and welcome to A Rumor of Empathy. Today, my special guest is Joseph Palumbo. Dean Palumbo is the founding dean of the Institute for Clinical Social Work, and he is the director of its Joseph Palumbo Center for Neuroscience and Psychoanalytic Social Work. He's a faculty member of the Child and Adolescent Psychoanalytic Therapy Program, Institute for Psychoanalysis Chicago. Dean Palumbo has contributed numerous articles to the literature and two books, Nonverbal Learning Disabilities, A Clinical Perspective, and another book, Learning Disorders and Disorders of the Self in Childhood and Adolescence. Joe has co-authored the textbook, Guide to Psychoanalytic Development Theories, frequently used in courses on human development. Dean Palumbo, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lou. I appreciate your invitation. Hey, it's great to have you here and a great opportunity to mix it up and have a conversation. You know, I want to start a little bit uh, with a comment about your book, A Rumor of Empathy, uh, which was a little bit of a heavy reading, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I have a couple of thoughts about it that I wanted to share with you. Th- thank you. Uh, please do. Uh, a Rumor of Empathy, Rewriting Empathy in the Context of Philosophy. Right. Right. Well, the first one was uh, the omission of Dildi's contribution to empathy from uh, the chapters that you wrote. Uh, was that uh, sort of intentional or because you didn't think of him as in the mainstream of philosophy? Well, no softball questions here, Joe. Um, Dildi, or otherwise known as Wilhelm Dilti, depending how you, uh, you know, right. how we choose to, to translate from the German here. Um, he's not in the, in, in the book because I had 55,000 words and had to make some decisions. Oh. Uh, and more substantively, uh, Rudolf MacRiel, who is probably the premier Dilti scholar in uh, Western civilization, or at least in Europe and North America, uh, argues that he's not a philosopher of empathy, Einfühlung. He's a philosopher of the imagination. He's a philosopher of reconstruction and of human relations, but not of empathy. So I would need at least another 10,000 words to explain how he really is or perhaps is not a philosopher of empathy. So some tough decisions there. Uh, I I think that – does that answer the question? 
It does. It does. Well, the, the reason I thought of him is because, at least in, in uh, the profession, in the clinical practice, we think of him as having contributed to our understanding of empathy as uh, a way of getting into people's experiences. You know, he talks about the lived experience of people yeah. as uh, demonstrated, you know, what, what people are like, and so through empathy we can access that. Well, you know, I mean, and I take the point. I take the, uh, in effect, it's not really a criticism, but if it were, that would be okay, too. Dilty or Dildy opens up a whole world of lived experience. And for many of us who actually, you know, are committed to understanding human beings in their humanness and in their struggles and in their empathy and lack of it, he would be on the radar. Uh, So... You know, some of it is, uh, as I say, it's it's a poor excuse word count. Nevertheless, one has to make, you know, one has to make some tough decisions. I decided to include the deep history of empathy. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. But we want to get to the major action, your work on neuroscience. So why don't, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I mean, maybe another thought uh, that that will transition to, to, uh, you know, the topic, uh, it has to do with the chapter on Hume, which I enjoyed the most, actually. And the reason I enjoyed it was because he presents empathy, or what he calls humanity, as a trait in human uh, personality, in human character, that is to be admired, something that we think of as uh, you know, a, an enlightened person yes. um, having a sense of humanity. And I was thinking how we have sort of lost sight of that in terms of our expectations of people, uh, at least in public life nowadays, where we don't think of their humanity or their depth of empathy and capacity for empathy as what we would vote for uh, if they were running for office. And thank you for that. I mean, that's such a powerful and important thought. Um, Hume, I mean, I have two associations to that. First, Hume was writing before the word empathy had been invented in the English language. He's a David Hume is a a commanding, towering master of the English language, and he writes about, he's got at least five different definitions of sympathy, including one that's mighty similar to what you and I would understand by empathy. He appreciates, quote, that the minds of men are mirrors to one another and emotions are reflected back and forth. It does remind me. Uh, what you say of of the humanity of the work of someone we want to talk about today because of your own experience, Heinz Kohut, one of the innovators of empathy. And I understand from our, so here's the question. I mean, I understand from our conversation before the show that you were studied with uh, Dr. Kohut, uh, faculty, a psychiatrist, faculty at the Institute for Psychoanalysis, right. faculty at, I believe, Michael Reese Hospital here in Chicago in its day, and uh, innovator in the matter of empathy. What were your, so the question is, what were your experiences with him? Share uh, something well, of that for, with me and with the audience. I was fortunate in having 
started to work at the Institute for Psychoanalysis as the director of the child therapy program uh, just in 1970, just as he was finishing up the work on his first book, uh, The Analysis of the Self, and uh, having essentially put into practice um, all that he had thought about in terms of how empathy uh, enhances the work of, uh, of the therapist and allows therapists to enter into the experience of their patients, uh, deepening the relationship, but also uncovering aspects of their personalities that were not evident before. Now, what's interesting is that before 1970, God had made a, a, an interesting contribution uh, which bridges with what we were talking about, uh, about Hume. Yeah. You know, he was interested in narcissism. Narcissism at that time being seen in a pejorative light as people being self-invested, people being self-centered. And, and he thought that there was another facet to narcissism, which is a healthy expression of it that allows people to feel pride, confidence, you know, assertiveness yes. in a healthy way. And he uh, posited that one's narcissism in a mature way translates into traits, uh, not so much of humanity, although I think he would have liked the term, but he thought about creativity, humor, wisdom, uh, and empathy as qualities that sort of... Uh, allow the person to um, get beyond their self-centeredness uh, to care for others. and to that, that is so great. May I interrupt you at this yeah. point to, uh, for the benefit of those listeners who may not actually have a, a, a ready definition of what is empathy. How uh, did Kohut define empathy? Let's, you know, be, let's be diligent and rigorous. Define our terms. You've defined narcissism. It's a, it can be a pejorative, a kind of negative, self-centered, I, me, mine, look at how great I am. Or it can be a positive thing, my contribution, accomplishments, um, right. and in, in, a, in a broad sense. How, how, do we, would, we def- how would Kohut, oh, and for, how would we define empathy here? Well, he had a couple of definitions, but the ones that uh, I, I sort of relate the most have to do with, uh, first of all, decentering oneself, as I would put it, which means that um, instead of looking at the world from your own perspective, uh, looking at it from the perspective of the experience of the person you're trying to understand. So you're walking in their shoes, you're, you're experiencing with them uh, how they feel about what has happened to them, and uh, you, you then vicariously live through that experience. A key term, vicarious there. Let me call that out. You vicariously live. So I have a vicarious, what, I mean, you know, what, uh, what is a vicarious experience? That's pretty important. Well, you know, when I think about vicarious experiences in, in clinical terms, I think about some, some of the, the patients that I see, for example. Um, I've worked a great deal with uh, children with learning disabilities. That's what I have written about. Yes. Now, uh, we, we can take some, some of these children, and because of the ways their brains function, uh, 
people look at them not understanding that what guides their behavior has to do more with their brain dysfunctions. And so they um, use judgmental terms. You're lazy, you're not trying hard enough, you're, uh, you know, you're not interested, you're not motivated, um, sort of words that condemn the behavior. When I talk about vicarious, the introspecting, I get into that child's experience and I say, what would it be like, you know, if I couldn't read? What would it be like, you know, if the world appeared to me as a puzzle where social contacts sort of uh, were mysterious and I couldn't decode what others were saying? How would that feel? And so trying to enter into that experience vicariously allows me then to get a deeper understanding and to, to gain some contact then with, with the person. Let uh, me give back to you. Let me t- pause for a breath for a moment because there's a lot there for sure. Yes. And let me give back to you what I think I got, and you can tell me whether it's accurate or not. So uh, a, a, a child of tender age, I mean, whatever, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and so on, on up, is dealing with school and, with, and some learning issues. And oftentimes, all too often, you know, parents are human. It's a tough job being a parent. I want to give a shout out and acknowledge parents. Nevertheless, sometimes it comes across, what's the matter with you? Are you lazy? Do you give a darn? Do you really not care? I mean, God forbid somebody would use, there's all these devaluing terms, which we're not going to go into, <laughs> right? right? Because that's the whole point. But rather, uh, to have a vicarious experience of being inside, frustrating, the letters are swimming around on the page. The the young person is being frustrated. People are on his or her case. It can't do, and the feeling of can't do anything right. And And one has to have some sense of the perhaps frustration and anger even if not rage and not being understood in order for you as a clinician as a educator as you know somebody who's committed to making a difference to get in inside for want of a better term that that experience and to make contact hey that's not very easy am i getting it right absolutely absolutely you've described it yeah. Very, very well. One, one thing I, I also want to call out, since I'm kind of on the soapbox here, those of our listeners who go to the theater or watch movies or read novels will know about a vicarious experience because we have a vicarious experience of the protagonist and of the, of the hero or heroine or, you know, anti-hero in the movie or in the novel or in the, in the show, in the theater. And so it's, it's, it's a kind of experience of another's experience. And um, it's different, I want to call it out, as different than compassion as what we understand today. This is not David Hume, but what we understand today is a kind of sympathy, a reactive, altruistic response, which is definitely good. Heavens knows we need more altruism. Would, would you think, Koh, I mean, I don't want to ask a yes or no question. You think Kohat would agree? I mean, and so Well, so this sort of echoes back to another theme in your book about aesthetic experience. Yes. Uh, the aesthetic experience being, you know, um, that uh, when we watch a play, we project ourselves into the characters. When we listen to a symphony, we project ourselves into, you know, uh, the sounds and immerse ourselves in that, in, in that experience, um, yeah. which requires well, some form of empathy. Um, 
it does well, it does recall i mean i want to make the connection with neuroscience because you you call that out it does recall the the film boyhood which is currently yeah. out and about and which i think is a contribution to our empathy of somebody growing up and he this individual has some learning challenges but it, you know it's, it has a happy ending not to give right. it away more or less happy uh a great flick for getting inside the head of a young boy right um one of the things that we, we, we need to reference in relation to this is the whole issue of self-esteem uh-huh. and the relationship of um, the parental empathy for their child and uh, the way it enhances the child's capacity to feel good about him or herself. Uh, there, there is a, a direct correlation um, between a parent who listens to the child, admires the child, praises the child, and truly values that child, and how the child experiences that. So that uh, by taking in, you know, the love and care that the parent showers on that child, that child's sense of self-esteem is enhanced. By contrast, when a child who has one of these neurological problems uh, feels criticized, feels put down, feels demeaned, that crushes their self-esteem, and that sets the stage then for possible problems for the rest of their lives, where they don't feel confident, where they feel sort of that uh, uh, around the corner somebody will uh, detect their weaknesses and there's uncertainty about how they, they should deal with situations. It undermines then the whole structure of their character and personality. And we should emphasize, as guidance to parents here, to find something that can authentically and, and sincerely be called out that the young person, the kid, is good at, so that one can validate. I mean, someone who's struggling with soccer, uh, you don't necessarily want to tell them how great they are because they know the truth. Kids know what's so. And so the coaching to the the guidance for the folks is to uh, find something that can genuinely be a source of self-esteem. Every Most everybody's good at something. Now, we have about uh, one minute before we go to break, and I want to emphasize that when we come back, we're going to, I think it would be useful perhaps to get an example up on the table and to connect the dots between uh, issues in behavior, action, how kids of all ages feel about themselves and issues in neuroscience and learning. We are neurons all the way up and all the way down. My special guest today is Joseph Palumbo, founding dean, the Institute for Clinical Social Work and director of the Joseph Palumbo Center for Neuroscience and Psychoanalytic Social Work. We will be right back. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, 
Lou provides three services, Empathy Consulting and Education, in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual Psychotherapy Services, to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues, where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement, action, and accomplishment, and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to share success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Hear about personal growth, building a better business, inspirational life stories, and personal branding. You'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to arumorofempathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Lou Augusta. Welcome back to A Rumor of Empathy. My special guest today is Joseph Palumbo, founding dean, Institute for Clinical Social Work, and director of the Joseph Palumbo Center for Neuroscience and Psychoanalytic Social Work. Say that fast five times. Before the break, we were talking about connecting the dots between learning disabilities and neuroscience. And sometimes it happens that children of tender age with challenges in the matter of learning grow up to be adults with learning disabilities. Let's see if we can get an example on the table. Back over to you, Joe. Thank you. Uh, let me introduce this first by, by saying a word about the center. Uh, what we're interested in in, in this center is um, translating for people the vast knowledge that is accumulating in, in, in the area of neuroscience uh, to practical applications uh, in many, many areas of day-to-day life, uh, you know, in child-rearing, in education, um, in uh, 
issues that affect children who uh, have injuries, for example. We know a great deal now um, in terms of the neuroscience uh, of how the brain works. There's a great deal that we do not know about how the brain works. But what we do know still remains to be translated in language that parents can understand, that teachers can understand, and even that clinicians can understand so that they can put that knowledge to use in, in their day-to-day practice. So, uh, the Making example, a difference, making a difference for, for children and parents alike. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So th- this is really the mission of our center. But uh, in, in more direct... I'm inspired. Let me just say I'm inspired. And, and that's one of the reasons. I mean, I, you know, what really inspired me is the humanity. People are dealing with a lot of stuff. I, I mean, in school, in jobs, in... I mean, and as you say, some of it, people are born, kind of born that way, or they have kind of traumatic or negative experiences. In other cases, they're injured. That's correct. And, and, and uh, what's often left out... You know, the medical profession does a wonderful job of addressing the medical problems of people with brain injuries. You know, we have kids who have uh, suffered from uh, brain tumors who undergo um, uh, procedures that, uh, like radiation procedures that affect their brain function. What is left out in all of this is how the kids experience that, how they feel about it, which is where empathy enters in. It's like, how do we understand? Well, let me give you a, yeah. just a, a brief example. There's been a lot written about uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of talk about, uh, you know, concussions and the effects of concussions on, uh, on football players. Yes. And more specifically on kids. Uh, we know a great deal about the effects of the brain trauma itself and, you know, the uh, prescription is, well, put the kid on the sideline, don't let him play for um, three or four days or maybe a week until he recovers. But what is left out is the child's emotional experience. What we know, for example, in terms of the emotional experience is if you take a kid who's dedicated a lot of his career in high school to football and suddenly he's injured and is sidelined and for three weeks, four weeks, a month, cannot play, what inevitably happens, in my experience, is the kid gets depressed. Yeah. Something has been left out of his, you know, all the attention, all the investment that he had, and all the energy that went into practices is no longer available, and so the child is left with this empty space that he cannot fill. And the, the, the crushing aspect to the self-esteem of the child is then what brings on these feelings of uh, isolation, loneliness, the loss of the friendships that he has with the other team members, which can be quite uh, traumatic. Uh, Devastating even. I mean, I, I'm, I am vicariously um, sad. I mean, this, this is a tough situation because you don't want to damage your head irreversibly. Right. And on the other hand, this is the young man or, or young person's life right. and the social connectivity. And so you know, to be bold, I mean, what is the intervention here? I mean, obviously, yes, uh, you know, injuries and drugs change the brain, but so do conversations. So Absolutely. do 
Right, right. I mean, th- that child needs to talk with with somebody uh, in order to uh, be able to address the feelings, to address the depression, to find alternative ways of, uh, of gaining some of that self confidence and redirecting it in a way that allows some kind of recovery. Now, I wanted to give you another example that our listeners may be interested in uh, of how a learning disorder can affect an adult and relationships in adulthood, too. I mean, what we're talking about here in kids is uh, fairly much in the news. What isn't in the news is, uh, I I was thinking of an example, and this is kind of a... uh, uh, disguised example so as not to violate the confidentiality of uh, the material I gain, but uh, a couple comes because they have been uh, at loggerheads arguing with each other. A couple. This, so this is a couple. This is a couple, uh, yes. Uh, married for 10 years, two children, uh, and uh, they're at a point where there's so much conflict that they're considering separating or divorcing because there are, quote, irreconcilable differences. And so what are the differences? Uh, they're both competent people. They're both professionals. Uh, you know, the, uh, the woman uh, uh, is a lawyer, successful in the firm where she works. Uh, he is a physician, and he does very well. But there's something wrong in the relationship. And what's wrong in the relationship is that the gentleman um, is disorganized. So uh, mom says, don't forget to pick up the kids from daycare this afternoon because uh, I won't be able to do it. You know, uh, at yeah. 4 o'clock, she gets a call saying, why aren't you picking up the kid? So she calls her husband. Oh, I forgot. I was in the middle of doing something and I forgot to do that. And Uh-oh. there's this huge argument. Then she says, well, would you mail these letters for me uh, because it's important for them to go out tomorrow, otherwise our bills won't get paid. Two days later, she discovers he's forgotten to mail the bills. Or the, uh, to mail the and letters. the car is being repossessed. Bad exactly. joke, right? And it's a and breakdown. It's an upset, huh? Numerous, numerous such incidents to the point where she says he doesn't care, he's not attentive, you know, he's so involved in his work, he's not paying enough attention to the kids, you know, how can we go on living like that? You know, he's not being an adequate husband or father. I'm done with him. This relationship is in breakdown. Right. Okay, so they come for therapy, and I begin to explore what's going on. Now, given my knowledge of neuroscience and learning disorders, I quickly recognize what this gentleman has is what's called an executive function disorder. What that translates into is that he is disorganized, not because he's inattentive or unmotivated, but because some people's brains don't work in a sequential, orderly way. And so... Keeping track of time, keeping track of details, you know, is a challenge for people like that. Uh, we this have is brilliant, examples. Joe. This is really brilliant. I'm gonna, I have a thought, but go ahead. Uh, please continue. Well, we, we, we have a lot of examples of kids in high school where they do very well for the first, you know, 
ninth, 10th grade, and then they get into uh, uh, freshman or uh, sophomore year in high school, and they implode. What happens is they don't turn in their homework, they can't keep track of uh, assignments, uh, they're late, um, you know, they can't get to school on time, and the disorganization takes over their lives, and of course, parents then get frantic, uh, they are trying to structure the kid, and the kid is rebelling against the structure, and so... And so it's a negative feedback loop. And when by the time they get to therapy with you, right. uh, you have to work through the anger and the resentment and the back and forth and round and round before you can get at the fundamental problem, exactly. which is the, is the right. disorganization. Let me give you one more thought. Yes. Your empathy enables you to redescribe what seemed to be lack of caring, indifference, devaluing terms like laziness as an executive function disorder. It made me think of, I mean, attention deficit disorder of various kinds is in the news these days. Right. In fact, there's a secondary market amongst high school students and uh, college students for, uh, it's bad, uh, medications that address the matter, but we don't necessarily want to go there. Uh, the question then becomes, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a nice way in which your empathy enables you to re-describe this breakdown, this big honking upset in, in neuro neurological terms in terms of neuroscience the, the tough question which I'm no softball questions here today uh, what is the intervention what's the recommended treatment what are your thoughts on that well uh, okay if we take the couple yeah you know having identified the problem now and we, 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 we sent the gentleman for testing to confirm that indeed this is what he has the testing comes back and so we have a series of sessions with both of them where I explain to the wife that this, uh, that her husband's problem doesn't have to do with caring or not caring or being motivated. It has to do with the way his brain works. And so what we're trying to instill in her is empathy for him that goes beyond the criticism that she has for what he does to an understanding that he has it's like a handicap. It's like, you know, you're asking somebody who is, uh, you know, traumatically injured and uh, has had a stroke to exercise the arm where the stroke occurred. He can't do it. There have to be compensations for that. So the empathy is, A, to understand the person, then to help the spouse have empathy for her husband's impairment and then trying to find practical solutions so that his impairment doesn't interfere with their lives and their relationships. And there are other ways of compensating. They may have to have, you know, uh, a babysitter. They may have to deprive it themselves from going out in order to support someone who's going to help complement what he cannot do so that the relationship can be saved. So let me see if I can get inside what the guidance and the coaching is here because, I mean, there's always tips and techniques and, you know, this individual may usefully carry uh, a, a reminder or a schedule, whether it's on a smartphone or, you know, pencil and paper also works pretty well, too, in a pinch. Uh, but your commitment, I mean, the, the breakthrough is in terms of uh, helping these individuals 
expand their empathy for one another and instead of bringing anger and devaluing terms to say like hey what's really going on here and you're the metaphor of an actual i mean reasonable accommodation if somebody has a neurolo neurological damage to their arm reasonable accommodation right. may be appropriate and uh, and so you're redescribing in effect translating the situation in terms which take out the negative affect right which take out right. the you know the, i mean the hatred and the, and the and the bad feeling and the contempt and the resentment and the and the round and round and back and forth which are so challenging Exactly. And then, and so that's called talk therapy. That's part of talk therapy. <laughs> yeah, help me out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my definition of therapy goes beyond what the traditional people consider. I mean, many people think, well, you, you're going to work through the conflicts that a person has, you know, the guilt that they have, the shame that they feel. Um, I feel that as a therapist, if you're working especially with people with these handicaps, you have to go beyond just sort of the talk aspect to teaching them about what the impairment is. I mean, one of the first things that we need to do with people like that is to say, you need to understand the nature of the dysfunction, because if you don't understand it, then you're going to misinterpret the behavior. And so uh, there's a didactic component that goes in. And then beyond that, there's what I, I, I call the empowerment component. That is, the person, the couple, has to take charge of their lives to make changes that allow them to either compensate for the deficit or find ways for others to complement their deficits. Yeah. Well, uh, we have about one minute till we go to break. Let me give that back to you. When you say uh, learning and education, I probably should define our terms there. I think very broadly in the sense that you're learning or helping or guiding them to get in touch with their feelings, to introspect what is their own experience. I mean, it's not just, I'm, I'm guessing, but I've got to believe it's not just informational, but it's, this therapy is a process of learning itself how to articulate one's experiences, emotions, interrupt the funk, interrupt the negative thought, uh, which means one has to do some free association there, too. Yes? It's both, yes. Yeah. But there is yeah. a didactic component also. We can get back to that. Well, I th and I think we, we're about one minute from the break. When we come back, what I'd like to do, I mean, this is there's like 101 issues on the table, but w empathy is usually like motherhood and apple pie. What's not to like about that? And yet sometimes there's resistance to empathy. Sometimes it's like, well, let's talk. This apple pie is kind of fattening, and let's talk about my mother. That could be, She's a, a wonderful woman and very empathic, my late mother. And nevertheless, sometimes talking about one's mother can be confronting. When we come back, I want to guide us in the direction of looking at what you might call the dark side of empathy. Is it always good? Is there something? What are the trade-offs there? So, with that thought in mind, we are talking to special guest Joseph Palumbo, founding dean, Institute for Clinical Social Work, Chicago, and director of the Joseph Palumbo Center for Neuroscience and Psychoanalytic Social Work. We will be right back. 
Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, Lou provides three services. Empathy Consulting and Education, in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual Psychotherapy Services, to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues, where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement, action, and accomplishment, and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to arumorofempathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Lou Augusta. Welcome back to a rumor of empathy. My special guest today is Joseph Palumbo, founding Dean Institute for Clinical Social Work and director of the Joseph Palumbo Center for Neuroscience and Psychoanalytic Social Work. Before the break, we were saying empathy is supposed to be so great, but couldn't there be a dark side to it as well? What are the trade-offs? Joe, back over to you. What are your thoughts about that? Could we just... uh uh, continue a thought before we get back to this. Sure. I, I wanted to introduce something that you and I talked about um, during the break, which has to do with a different way of thinking about therapy. 
and looking at what we're doing as addressing a system rather than individuals. Yes. And uh, the systems approach really is very useful in reconfiguring how we think about the interventions we make with couples. What we're doing essentially is by introducing new information, by empathy, understanding differently what the patients experienced, we are really helping them uh, rebalance their relationships so that a new configuration emerges out of uh, the shift in attitudes and what we have is a new what we call an emergent property which is uh, a new uh, system uh, of relationships that exists among the members there and well, that then allows them to to relate to each other in a healthier more constructive way well brilliant i mean in terms of the example you were given this giving before the break this couple comes in they're in breakdown back and forth resentment uh, the guy can't remember anything he's disorganized and the, you, you in effect your tool in the therapy is empathy and it enables the individuals to see things that they had not seen before because some of the phenomenon the behaviors the actions are get redescribed instead of being a jerk he is forgetful because he has an executive function disorder instead of being uh, down on the relationship he just is has some a measure, uh, if you, for want of a better description, of attention deficit. Redescribing that changes the system, right. allowing right. effect. I mean, on a good day, affection and affinity emerge. On a on a you know, allowing the in couple to have empathy for one another. Am I getting this right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's correct. And, and that's, that's a power, That's what, a systems approach, huh? Yeah. This yeah. is what I'm working on in in a new book, which I hope to be published in the next year or so. Well, give a shout out to that. I mean, is there a working title so we can look for it on Amazon? Uh, tentatively, it's going to be self-deficits and the search for complementarity. The search for complementarity is really a very important concept in terms of how I think about uh, helping people with these disorders. You know, what we don't realize is how much others fill in sort of the holes in our brains or in our minds um, in, an un- in a non-conscious way, sort of in a, uh, you know, I, I, I was, uh, this summer we, we uh, last summer, we, you know, we had uh, as our guests a couple where the husband was uh, becoming senile. Mm-hmm. And what was happening there was the wife had taken over uh, functions that he had lost. She was his memory. She structured his, uh, the, his time. She, she filled in cognitive deficits that he was losing and became sort of the complement to what he needed. Well, in our daily lives, people complement us in many ways. If I forget a word or something, you know, people will jump in and sort of fill it in. Uh, or, you know, you're going to remind me when it's time to stop. Uh, these are complementary functions that each of us uh, provides others. We only are aware uh, and so of them the, when, yeah. they're not, when they're missing. 
let me say so the like the point I'm getting is that we human beings do that for one another even when there's not some neurological disorder Absolutely. my wife and I are perfectly healthy knock on wood god bless and all of that and we do that for one another we remind one another uh, so we i mean and not just memory but emotionally effectively uh, right. in all of these ways we are i mean to bring it back where we started with Heinz Coat he's got this distinction right the self object where Correct. we like help one another to regulate our emotions our thoughts right. our affectivity our relatedness kind of what we do in a conversation right. i add to the concept of self object which is the emotional needs that other provides for us the concept of adjunctive functions and adjunctive functions are those cognitive functions that others fill in for us. Yeah. And, 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 and we need both of those in order to, uh, you know, uh, lead our, our daily lives. You know, uh, without that, uh, you know, uh, we will not succeed, we will fail. A good marriage, to me, a good relationship is one where uh, each complements the others in both aspects. So that's part of the reason for calling my the title of my book being The Search for Complementarity, which is that in people with those deficits, they are constantly looking for you know, who or what is going to fill in uh, the deficits that I have to allow me to, to have a sense of cohesion, as, as Kohat, a sense of well-being. A sense of integrity. Right. And a sense of cooperation. I mean, this is the basis. I'm making this up now, but it sounds to me like the basis for cooperation, teamwork, for getting things done in community. It's fundamental. It's big. Absolutely. It's bigger than big. I'm not sure what bigger than big would be, but you know, we'll find out when your book gets published. So we'll look forward to that. And thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank. I mean. Th Thank you. I mean, I, you know, I know from our conversations otherwise, you are a synthetic mind. You are a synthesizer, uh, among other things. I mean, in addition to the innovations you bring to this work. Of, uh, and and it's, it's the connecting of the dots, which is not easy to do, between neuroscience and talk therapy, dynamic therapy, uh, understanding human beings as emotionally embodied um, and so that kind of, I mean, before you, you know, we kind of digressed here, we were going to talk about the dark side of empathy. Yes. You want to go back? You want to go back there? Yeah, I do, because uh, it raises a concern and that people don't often think about this, quote, dark side of empathy. Uh, Kohat emphasized the fact that empathy can be used to good ends or to evil ends. I mean, his, his favorite example was... Uh, that the Nazis used sirens on their dive bombers in order to terrorize people. They knowingly, uh, you know, used that using their empathy because they knew what would instill fear. Yeah. Now, when I think about the, the the dark side of empathy, the other thing that comes into mind, which has been in the news recently, is uh, you know those two psychologists who used their knowledge of human beings in order to enhance uh, the, uh, the interrogation techniques that the CIA was using in, in, in the Guantanamo Bay jail or in the black sites. Yes. And what's involved here is really that you have to know the weaknesses 
of your victims, and that requires a measure of empathy in order to most effectively sort of uh, obtain the results you want from that. Uh, to me, that is, uh, it's hard to think of that as empathy, but indeed, un- that depth of understanding requires the measure of empathy. Well, you know, I mean, and this is very confronting, difficult material and controversial. We want to call it out. There may be reasonable individuals may disagree about some of some of these tough things, enhanced yeah. interrogation. And, of course, having a conversation is different than waterboarding. And I gather the psychologists were mainly passing on. Uh, not to, This is not dump on professional psychology day. We can schedule right. one of those some other time because the majority, I mean, like the vast majority, dedicated, commit, committed to overcoming managing, dealing with human suffering, making a difference, using empathy. Nevertheless, this is a celebrated c- case in the news. Yeah. And uh, as you say, the, the Nazis on using, uh, you know, the, the being using empathy or some distorted version of it to be more effective, the psychologists in enhanced interrogation using some distorted, for want of a better description, and psychopathy as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole list of, of yeah. things that can go wrong. People, some, some, some psychopaths don't have a conscience. Others really don't seem to pick up on the kinds of emotions that empathy would make available. Some uh, individuals suffer from both lack of conscience. What's your guidance here? I mean, how do I, how do I turn... Uh, I, I'm just not even sure what the question is, other than, can, can you help me out? Can you say more? Well, you know, I guess the general point is that without empathy, you know, we as human beings become islands isolated from the rest of the world. We need empathy to be interconnected with others. But then how we use that empathy really uh, defines who we are, the values that we have. I mean, it brings us back to the values that Hume sort of... Uh, uh, proposed as a humaneness. So if we think about empathy in, in, in its broadest way, that yes, we have to be mindful that you know, we can hurt others through our knowledge of their weaknesses, we can also enhance them, we can also be connected and bring good in the world as a result of our capacity to uh, empathize and to... Uh, provide for others emotional needs. Indeed. And so uh, basically empathy tells me what the other person is experiencing, whereas morality, ethics, and humanity tells me what to do about it. Yes. Right. Right. Well, Uh, I mean, I must say this has been an engaging, dynamic, rewarding conversation, Joe, Dean Palumbo. We are out of time. And so let me thank you and thank the listening audience. A rumor of empathy is no rumor in the work you are doing, Joseph Palumbo, at the Center for Neuroscience and Psychoanalytic Social Work. Next week, my special guest is Misha Zupko, musician, music professor, and composer, and an amazing conversationalist. Join me next week for a rumor of empathy in music. We'll see you then. It was a pleasure being there. Thank you for
for tuning in to A Rumor of Empathy with Lou Augusta. Please join us again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope to see you again next week. We'll be right back.